that was in the 1940s where the people spoke about the most known watch brands and Omega was one of them. Um, every family that I, a lot of families that I know all have an Omega. The lady who came in a little bit ago, she has an Omega. My grandfather bought an Omega, my father had an Omega. Omega was really the brand that everybody had. Then you see some people have Vacheron, some people had Breguet, some people had Patek. More people had Rolex, but the most, in my experience, had um, Omegas because Omega was a much bigger, much more important uh, brand than Rolex was. But in the 50s, if I'm not mistaken, the direction, the, the, the governing direction of uh, Rolex, commercial directors and all things, took a very aggressive stance and took away market shares from everybody else. They, they, they really did a great job and they kept on to that power 70 years later. You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My dad has had big conversations with other people around the world and here in Geneva. He loves it and he's all crazy about it. Remember to have fun listening to it, the Rodolfo Rivas Project. Thank you for listening. This is the Rodolfo Rivas Project. And I am Rodolfo Rivas, your host. The Rodolfo Rivas project has always been about talking to interesting individuals and learning from their experiences. Since I'm a lawyer working in, in international trade, intellectual property and dispute settlement, many of my guests have worked in these areas. However, I've also featured filmmakers, because film is a passion of mine, CEOs, because I also dabble in entrepreneurship, and other professionals with the idea of covering some of my interests. As this project grows, I look forward to including writers, scientists, athletes, politicians, and many other industry leaders. Since I am based in Switzerland, and Swiss culture is closely linked to watches, I plan to talk to many watch individuals in the industry to learn more about the different facets of it. The first of hopefully many guests in the watch world is none other than Mr. Roy Davidoff, a celebrity dealer in the watch community. Roy and his brother are based in Geneva, out of their shop in the Old Town. Roy has become a point of reference and his shop is an essential stop for any watch enthusiast visiting Geneva before a necessary appointment, that is. Roy has worked in the industry for decades and made a name for, his, for himself as one of the foremost experts on the Omega Speedmaster, the Moonwatch. But since then, he has branched out into everything related to watches. In our conversation, we covered how he got into watches, his views on the ever-changing industry, the Omega Swatch Moonswatch collaboration, and if the balance of power in the watch industry can be altered. During my visit, I was a fly on the wall and saw with delight how he operates. And believe me when I say, he is working 24-7. Our, our conversation was a lot of fun. And if you don't know much about watches, you will learn a few things after this. I hope you enjoy it. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all major platforms or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Please help spread the word by recommending us to your friends or even your enemies. A small act like liking, subscribing and a review is greatly appreciated.
thank you. The views, thoughts, and opinions shared in the conversation belong to the individuals sharing them and do not necessarily represent the views of their employer. Good morning and nice to meet you. Thank you for accepting my invitation. Thank you, Rodolfo. It's a pleasure. I've been... I recently got into watches and from the moment that I got into watches, like your name pop up, popped up and I was like, yeah, let's follow him. And I've been following what you've been doing, but until recently, because of a common acquaintance, uh, he actually told me, ah, yeah, I know Roy. I can put you in touch. I'm like, oh, brilliant. <laughs> please, please do that. So that's how I reached out hoping that you would be willing to meet me and thank you very much. Thank you to our common acquaintance. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I, I really want to talk about uh, about watches, but first I want to hear a bit about you. Uh, earlier, we were talking that you are, you're from Geneva. Exactly, I was, um, I was born here um, where I lived most of my young uh, life until a young adult. Then I, we moved to Miami for about a decade. And then um, after I finished uh, all my studies, uh, became uh, even went to the army, came back to the army in Switzerland, and I finished all my studies. Um, we moved back. To, I moved back to Geneva, and then I started working in watches. And I've been passionate about it, according to my aunt, since I was uh, four years old. Really? Yes. Uh, up in the mountains, I would stop in front of uh, the watch vitrine, you know, watch shops and say, I'm going to buy everything. And uh, I think that uh, 40 years later, I don't think I've changed uh, a bit. Well, actually, I've been in Geneva for for 14 years, but I didn't really notice watches, even though they were everywhere. But I didn't really uh, gravitate towards it. What, what attracted you to them? You know, uh, it's a good question. I come from a family of uh, jewelers, gemologists, uh, gem dealers, and um, I feel the moving parts are something uh, which, which interests me in the history and the fact that, you know, like when, when you hear a famous gemstone, it's just that stone. But when you hear a famous watch, usually they were made in multiples. Uh, it wasn't just one. And then the name transcends and then all of them are called the same way, like the Paul Newmans or the James Bonds or even misnomers like uh, the Steve McQueen. Uh, where if I just say the name, you, you picture the watch in your mind. You know that the, the Paul Newman's of Daytona with an exotic, uh, with a, with a, an exotic dial. Uh, you know the James Bond's no crown guard, um, Submariner with, uh, with the big crown preferably. And the Steve McQueen is uh, an Explorer II with, with that big recognizable uh, orange hand, uh, even though he actually wore uh, a Submariner. But that was something that was clear to you from that early age? So, clear that I loved watches, yes. How I got to where I am today, no. Um, you know, life is a journey. Uh, this is very cliche and it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it sounds very funny, but uh, life is a journey. Basically, how, do I, how did I get here? I had the opportunity of meeting uh, collectors, um, big collectors who uh, took me under their wings and uh, taught me a lot. I uh, had internships. Uh, for different uh, companies, and then I had uh, full-time jobs uh, for nearly a decade for uh, for a Swiss watch brand, and then uh, 
dabbled here and there with some consulting and watch and watches. And then my brother and I, um, nine years ago now, we decided to stop working for other people and just work for ourselves. And eight years ago, we founded our company. And um, you've been doing that uh, successfully based here in Geneva? Yes. Well, we, we travel a lot uh, okay. around the world, uh, all across Europe and, uh, and uh, North America, where we have a lot of our friends and suppliers. I, I am, like, I guess now part of the community of like, uh, watch lovers, I don't know what you call it. But sometimes I forget that not everyone is like part of the community. To me, it seems that everyone, but it's not everyone. How do you explain, because I have to do it like pretty much all the time. How do you explain watches to someone who is not really into watches? How do you do it? Or you so, don't do it at all? No, so it, so it depends. If someone has a question about watches, I'm always happy to, to, to explain. Um, I very often have uh, friends who have kids that are... Um, Uh, teenagers are a bit older and they're like, oh, my son wants to learn more about watches. Uh, <laughs> it takes a lot of time, but I, I enjoy talking to them and showing them and just explaining everything because I feel that I was lucky enough to have people take me under their, their, their wings that I try to do the same. And um, if someone asks me about watches, I ask them what they like, what they like to do, um, what is, if they want to buy a watch or they just have questions you know like uh, once uh, once or twice a year I take a couple of friends we go to the Patek Museum and I give them a little tour just to, 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 to show them and explain them where the watches that we buy today came from so we have to speak about the history of watches we have to speak about the necessity because uh, necessity is as they say in English the mother of uh, all inventions And thinking of that, it's, um, it's quite a lot of fun because you, you think of people um, that had to cross oceans being able to measure where they were. So you had the quest for longitude and latitude, and then you had uh, the, the, the quest for the most precise chronometer-rated um, deck clocks, um, and then the, the quest for the, the best wristwatch, chronometer, thinnest, um, And it was just a perpetual, the 20th century especially, was a perpetual quest how to make watches better. Better from a technical standpoint, re repairability standpoint, durability, legibility, uh, which are all key factors that some brands sometimes forget, but uh, most brands uh, do not, especially like uh, Omega or Rolex, where they make their watches today to last uh, a lifetime. And uh, you were talking about like watches as tools, which I think is like uh, one of the elements of watches and why it's attracted. But now we have a lot of technology that can replace those tools and sometimes even more accurate. What is like the, why is there still a fascination to like the tools being done the old way? So it's the collector fascination. Collectors don't care that you can find, uh, car collectors don't care you can buy a car that doesn't consume gas anymore. They want the, the five, six gear, seven gear, uh, shifting, uh, gas guzzling, a loud roaring engine. Um, they have drip pans under their cars because there's nothing you can do about it because it's gonna drip. Uh, this is, <laughs> this is um, the kind of collectors that collect also vintage watches, okay. where they understand that it's not gonna be a perfect object. Very often have people come in my shop, they're like, oh, I want to buy a vintage watch, but I want to go swimming with it. And I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
like I don't care if the watch you're, you're buying from the shop is uh, is water resistant at the moment you exit the door. Yeah. I guarantee you the water's gonna go in. <laughs> so what I do is I, I mean uh, what I do sometimes I, I send them to uh, let's say to Omega to buy a brand new Speedmaster because uh, this way they can wear it every day and not have to worry about water damages or anything. But the true collectors understand that they have to be more delicate. The same thing with cars and the same thing with other objects. Um, when you have certain art pieces, for example, which some watches have become recognized as art pieces, you display it with a glass box uh, on a wall away from other things. You make sure that it's a temperature controlled, uh, no direct sunlight. You're, you're careful for your art piece. And watch collectors also understand that, that let's say a day that is too humid, they won't wear certain watches. And uh, they, they, you know, they, they, they care about it, so it's important. And you're, it's funny that you mentioned cars because I, I think there's a parallel. But for example, cars, and maybe this is my appreciation, but I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Cars, you want to keep them in the best condition possible, and you repair them. Sometimes you even swap pieces for newer pieces. But in watches, that like is pretty much a. A rule, no, no. Yeah. yeah. Why? Why is there that difference? So the highly collectible cars usually are produced in smaller amounts. Uh, that's first of all, and second of all, for uh, uh, um, it, there are different technologies. You have to remember, a watch is running 24/7. It doesn't, unless you take it off your wrist. But the watch you wear on your wrist is running constantly. Hmm. Some watches will run 10 years without ever leaving the the wearer's wrist a car what does it run half an hour an hour four hours in a day two hours in a week four hours in a month it, it's not the same not the Word. same thing it's more about again the the having this collectible piece um car engines need the different lubrication they need different maintenance and all these things in the car market it is acceptable when some cars have all the electric system redone it is acceptable when the, all the seats have been reupholstered it is acceptable when some paints have been redone or you know things have been fixed but in in watches some models that have been produced like like speedmaster the 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 145022-69 that was produced Uh, right after uh, the, the start being produced with the, the new 861 caliber back in the day, uh, they produce theoretically around 100,000 pieces. So it's not a rare watch, it's just a rare watch in excellent condition. Uh, and that's what we specialize in, excellent condition. So we shouldn't have to worry about, oh, I need to replace this, or I need to replace that. You should buy a piece with like a low mileage type of uh, situation that has everything original. But sometimes you do come across uh, some watches where everything's perfect and then the original crown was swapped out during service. So then you have to source a, uh, the original crown and it, that's a bit, it takes a bit longer and it makes it more expensive. But, you know, um, if, you, if you keep like the crown on the side or if you explain to the client that this was done or there's a service paper, it, it's okay. okay. Um, the issue of not being okay is when things are redone and not stated. Okay. Um, you know, you, you, we, we, we're, we're very lucky to have a good network of, uh, of, uh, of suppliers and we ask them all the questions. And very often when we travel, I look at watches and the, the seller will look at me and say, not for you. <laughs> 
So because they know that I'm gonna I'm gonna bust their balls on ah this has been changed this is not correct this is later this is not you know. So my, my brother and I are quite careful when we buy so that when we sell we're we're quite okay. People know that uh, it's uh, 1969 hands on a 1969 bezel on 1969 pushers and crown and case back and bracelet etc. So it's nice to have everything um, period correct. Uh, because even if you had to swap out a mechanical part, a, a part that wears out, you can swap it out by a period part. Mm, so that's important that it's from the period but and the example, information. Yes, but it's important that the dials that nothing has been changed. Yeah. Untouched, the dials is, is, uh, is the one part of the watch that is unacceptable to have something uh, touched or done. So that's how we, um, that's how we, we work. And... Um, I'll tell you how I got into watches and I because I would love to hear like what you think about I used to see in the airport this ad I don't remember which brand that says that you only take care of the watch until, Patek, Patek Patek, until you pass it to the next generation or something like that I used to see it and it didn't click to me but when my father passed away I kept thinking what am I going to pass down to my daughters and it suddenly clicked and I don't know if I was the audience intended for that ad, but it does, it does, it resonated with me. So, um, Patek Philippe is a special case where there, some of their models are so sought after that this uh, tagline doesn't work because people buy it to resell it and make a big lot of money on it. So it doesn't work, but Patek Philippe in the past like Vacheron and Breguet and Audemars Piguet were like that. You had your one exclusive uh, nice gold round watch that you wore day in, day out, and the day that you were too old to wear it or the day you passed away or the day of an event, maybe your son or your daughter or someone gets married or graduates, you give them that watch. So you're just a keeper until the next generation. That story is uh, cute, but the reality <laughs> is that today a lot of collectors, they change the turn their collection every couple of years. Uh, they keep watches sometimes six months, sometimes six years, you know, there's no rule. And um, it's, it's nice to believe that you're buying into the marketing uh, that the, the watch brands want you to believe. But the fact remains that Patek Philippe, uh, Rolex, Audemars, uh, and many other brands are the brands that are holding their value the longest based on what they sold in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and today. And um, talking about um, some of the brands that you mentioned, you are, um, or at least that's what I know you for, like an expert on Speedmasters, but that's not all that you that you do. That, that's correct, very correct. <laughs> why, why, why the Speedmasters? At, at the beginning, so it's a it's a very, it's a very simple calculation. Um, when we started with a with a very modest, uh, as they say in trésor de guerre, but a very modest uh, cash flow, when we started uh, all the way all the way back on the, when we we're still scooting around Geneva with my my brother on the back of my my Vespa, going from like one bar to a restaurant to make presentations with flashlights, <laughs> you know, very very low key before we opened the shop. Um, we had to have product and I had a Speedmaster that my father gave me in the, when I was 13 
and my brother had his Speedmaster that he bought also uh, Japan Racing uh, when he was uh, traveling to Japan at the time for work. So we had a particular affection to the Speedmaster. And we found out that there was a bit of discrepancy between the US market and the European market where you could buy them also other places, basically half of what you could sell them in Switzerland. Um, so what happened is that it was cheaper to buy a lot of Speedmasters than buying a single Daytona. Um, so it was easier to purchase um, a dozen Speedmaster than a single Daytona, uh, mechanical ones. So it made our lives, um, it was easier just to have a larger collection of Speedmasters and then buying a lot of Speedmasters made us research a lot of Speedmasters. And through websites that were designed uh, over a decade before we started by Chuck Maddox um, and other friends, we were able to gather enormous amounts of information. And then being in Switzerland, we literally could sometimes go to the Omega Museum. And I even had the chance, uh, practically a decade ago, to watch their microfiche, to look at serial numbers, to see what came out. Uh, for example, I, we found a really rare Railmaster with like a full 12, um, 12 Arabic numerals. And the microfiche said, skeletonized dial for radium numbers, which is, uh, which is quite cool, you know, for this type of, um, this type of find because it's a dial that was that maybe I don't know four or five known and we had one and it was it was quite nice uh, today it's a bit more difficult um, you know we no longer have the same access um, and also we don't do as many omegas as we used to uh, because back then I don't know one year we sold like 150 or 160 speedmasters which is completely crazy <laughs> Uh, now we sell uh, around 200 watches a year, so it's a bit uh, it's a bit easier for us. We've uh, we've come back in in, uh, in quantity and we've upped the quality and the price point. But again, you know, we was we real lucky to 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 fall in the in the market at the time we did, and we uh, we just we just sold and bought and sold and bought so many Speedmasters that we became known as Speedmaster experts just from the sheer volume of what will go through our hands and the easy access to information to see if things were correct from the um, crowd uh, information to physical information, having UV lights, uh, putting things on their microscope, comparing fonts, comparing luminescent material uh, from other brands that were done at the, at the time by the same dial makers, comparing case finishes that were done also. Uh, by similar models from other brands and understanding um, that information isn't contained is that information usually if you find like a certain type of tritium color a certain year you will find it in other brands the exact same year that way you can verify now we can verify that it's correct and the glow is the same and you know people cannot say oh this is and it's not because you can tell from the color used the grain all these things you can tell that the watch was made, born, and assembled a certain tier. So it was a market opportunity, but also like a passion, like you were, you it are. Exactly, exactly. It was a market opportunity and passion, and it helped us uh, helped us build uh, quite a nice business. Actually, I think I, like a couple of months ago, when they launched the Moonswatch, yes. I saw you in line. Yeah, it was, was 100% like, in line. Like 10, <laughs> 10 places behind you. I was there like at six. You must have been there like five thirty. I don't know something like that. Oh, my my my, my mom was there. At six. I <laughs> arrived at five six fifteen. 
<laughs> but but that like I think because a lot of people ask me about watches and without knowing that I'm into watches just because I live in Geneva. But a common a common thought is that watches are expensive. And it's true, they are. But there's also more approachable ways to get into watches. Like for example the moon swatch is just an example. But there's others. Well, well the the swatch, the moon swatch is a, is a bit of a hyped model. It's a really cool watch. Um I, I'm still looking for a few colors and uh, probably will be looking for a few colors because uh, you know once I have all of them I won't be wearing all of them and if a friend really likes one I might give one to him you know that's like, that's what I do when I buy watches in multiples but in affordable in the affordable realm um, when people come in the shop and like oh I want to spend like a thousand bucks or two thousand bucks or five hundred bucks on a vintage watch ten years ago twenty years ago I could have sold them I had hundreds of choices nice. and today no longer exists because simply fixing a watch or chronograph is going to cost from anywhere from 800 to 1000 bucks. So it's no longer viable to sell watches under a certain price point because just a repair loan is prohibitive. Um, but what's the really nice thing it is that you have brands like uh, Tissot today that have come out with the PRX uh, with the Dallas fantastic has a, a fantastic texture reminding us of the of the Royal Oak and other and other models. And for the price point in quartz and an automatic is one of the best purchases you can do. Then you have the Longines that has all these really nice heritage pieces. All uh, my brother and I really, really like them. Uh, we don't keep them, unfortunately, but we actually, except for the Legend Diver, which is my favorite. But they made really nice quality pieces, really nice look and quite affordable. And then in the past, you could also go to, to Omega, but their price point went up and Rolex, but they're unobtainable. Yeah, but you were talking here about like modern watches. Yes. So I guess there's like two ways of approaching watches like vintage and their vintage can be like old vintage, like more newer vintage. So the word vintage uh, is still a word up for debate perpetually because every year that passes, every decade that passes, the word changes. Yeah. Because when I started in the 90s, vintage was mid-century to the 70s. 80s was like an 89 watch was made two years ago. <laughs> this was yeah. what crazy. And today, the 89 watch is 33 years old. Um, yeah, don't remind me. <laughs> yeah. So it's a long, it's a long time ago. Uh, so the word, you know, it's it's a fluid, it's a it's a fluid word. Um, we we put the barrier at the end of the 90s when the last tritium watches were being made in the first Luminova, and then Super Luminova watches were made in the early 2000s. So that's our that's our cutoff for what vintage is. But then today. that will change. We'll see. We'll go from like Super Luminova to Luminova, sorry, Luminova to Supernova to like when Chromalite came out and everything pre-Chromalite will be considered vintage. It's going to be like, let's say pre-ceramic bezels would be considered vintage. You know, it's going to, it's going to evolve that way. Uh, even though the word vintage means many things, um, to many people in many different fields. Uh, for cars, it was even a specific period, about 100 years ago, were vintage cars. And modern cars were like 70 years ago, which is insane. Anyways, the point being is that uh, when people want to collect, if they want to collect smaller vintage, it's very difficult to have to understand that the watch is not going to work perfectly if they want to just wear it, enjoy it once in a while. But if they want to watch for every day, vintage, not expensive, it'll be a very tough sale. Uh, I have a few friends who do that. They do little vintage pieces they're able to fix, not too expensive, and people are very happy with those. 
that when you have a watch, uh, let's say you, you can buy it for like, let's say 800 bucks, nice little watch, and then you go to fix it and it costs you seven or 600 bucks, then it's a, you, just, you just doubled the cost of your watch. Uh, if you inherit a watch and then you want to fix it, even though it's worth 500 bucks, it doesn't make a difference. Then it's just sentimental value. So that's why I always recommend people to, to, to go big. Um, let's say instead of buying like $3,000 watches, just buy one $3,000 watch. Dollar, euro, Swiss franc, whatever. And you were also talking about collectors. And I think that there's like this, it has like several elements within. So there's an element of speculation there's an element of passion as well. So speculators are not collectors. Okay. Some collectors also speculate, but if you're like, if you people walk into my shop and they're like, what watch is going to go up in value? So I tell them, listen, if you want financial advice, you need to go speak to your financial advisor or a banker. I'm not. I sell vintage watches. If you look at the price curve in the last 30 years, it's an uptrend. Even though it crashed in 2001, it crashed in 2009, it crashed 2014, uh, it did like a micro dip um, in March 2020, and now it's uh, it did a, again a dip uh, now in February, March, April of 2022. It's an upwards trend. Um, nice vintage watches from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and early 90s are no longer being produced. Everything that is done today is done with different means, different machines. So even the look and feel of the watch is different. And if you're a true collector, you're going to try to focus in those years. Um, walking into a shop and saying, oh, I was able to get uh, so-and-so uh, yellow, blue, pink, black, ceramic, not ceramic, doesn't make a difference um, because they're being produced. Rolex is working at full capacity plus plus because the demand has never been higher. Other brands as well, because the demand has never been higher. We had the, the COVID, which made everything more difficult, but today uh, people want to have uh, nice things and they realize that time is short, so they have, they have to enjoy it. But the, the, the trend is really, really, there should be a difference between a collector and a speculator. Uh, I, think, I think that it is right to, to differentiate, but you're still competing with them, like you as a, as a consumer who wants to buy a budget, you're, 100%. you're competing with them and they're, they're making it more difficult. 100%. If I want to get, uh, if I want, I, I had to take myself one year in advance to give my mom uh, a gift because the watch uh, was very popular. So I knew that as soon as it was available, I bought it. I left it in the safe and gave it to her for her birthday. My brother did the same uh, for, for his, you know. We, we order things and I now want to order a nice watch and they're like, oh, you'll get it in five years. I was like, oh, perfect. You know, <laughs> I'll wait. Uh, when back in the day, this exact type of model, you could have walked in, bought it and walked out and probably had a 5, 10, 15% discount. Uh, discount. <laughs> um, there are shops in the center of Geneva where I could have bought any stainless steel uh, Rolex model other than Daytona, 10% off. And they would have been super happy to sell it to me. And today uh, I have to, uh, you know, beg and uh, ask nicely and, uh, and bug and, uh, you know, do a, do a song and dance to, to be able to buy a watch, which, is, which has become insane because of those speculators. But uh, on the other hand, it's okay, you know, it's, it's, it's a market like any other. And you mentioned a couple of market corrections or I don't know how you... you dips. Dips. Well, yeah, market dips. corrections also. Um, so you've seen it before because recently in the mainstream media even, in the 
specialized media, but even in the mainstream media, they're talking about like a bit of the crash of this, which I think it's a bit of an exaggeration. You've seen it before, so you're not. 100%. You're not. And it was worse, and it was, it was worse in the past. It's just that um, for me, it's a market correction. Uh, it's not a market crash, it's a, it's a dip. But when you see, again, proper vintage, like you have world records that are being set for certain rare watches, while mainstream overhyped watches are price adjusting. For me, a Daytona was always worth double the retail. That's always been more or less the bench, you know, 50% more um, to 150% more. This is more or less the price. Having a 12, now 13,000 uh, watch being worth 45,300% of, uh, of its retail value is insane. And it can only go back down and, and, go and, and be market corrected because the watch is being produced. Um, when you have uh, GMTs that are also selling uh, three times the price, it, it doesn't, doesn't make any sense. They were asking 50,000 for a turquoise dial Rolex that's worth 5,500. So it was 10 times, practically 10 times the price for no reason other than it was hyped. So I can defend it like sneakers. They walk out, the retail is 250. You walk out the shop is worth 10 times more. Yeah. So in the sneaker world, nobody bats an eye. But in the watch world, it's a shame because basic sorry, entry level or basic collectors, not to, be, not to be a negative word, but basic collectors who want to have their first Rolex or their first uh, nice watch can no longer afford it because A, they don't have a purchase history because their first watch, and B, if they want that watch today, they have to pay the premium, which makes no sense. So it makes it, it gives you a bit of a bad feeling. So I feel that a lot of shops should do a lot better their homework to know who they're selling to uh, they're trying to, but there's still uh, people uh, falling through the cracks that are shouldn't be getting watches, and people that should get what get them are not. Yeah, this what you're talking about. Like what several times the retail price made me wonder. Like, well, if this is the case, why the the brands producing these watches why then they increase the price like to that? And that's because they knew that. Because, because imagine your watch you're selling for thirteen. Um, like a Daytona is always going to be always going to be a client, or Daytona is an exception. Let's say uh, an Oyster Perpetual or a Datejust. Okay, it's always going to be for me. Uh, if you pay five thousand or ten thousand for for a Rolex, for example, even in ten years, you wore the shit out of it, you enjoyed it, you scratched it, you whatever. It's still going to be worth eighty percent, ninety percent, hundred percent of what you paid for it, used. 10 years down the line. But the rule today is you walk out the shop, you do 10 times 10, because people no longer want to wait that amount of time to get it. And uh, instant gratification, especially now that people seemingly made a lot of money with crypto, but uh, they spent it. And then now um, that's why the market is getting flooded, because people realize that they need to liquidate their hard assets to pay back uh, all that virtual uh, money. Um, so that's why you th like they couldn't, the brands couldn't Increase the prices. No, because because it, it doesn't, for me, it doesn't make sense to increase. You increase because of, okay, the price is a bit production. low. Production, more complicated, blah, blah, blah. You can be at 10, 20%. Let's say a watch is actually worth 20 and you're asking 27. Okay, who cares? You know, you're a big brand. You're allowed, you can, you can, you can eat a bit more. Um, but it's not justifiable. Yeah, but when the watch on the secondary market is worth 150, the brand should not put it at like 80 because then everyone's going to look at them like they're stupid. Because for 80,000, you can buy, uh, 
you know, Kaributilanen, you can buy uh, MBNF, uh, you can buy you, you can buy a house in some countries, you can buy a house in, 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 in Greece. Um, which those prices make no sense for, for what they are. But it's, it's, so it's important to, to always uh, keep an open mind and to realize that you, you, you have to understand that if the brands go into the hype, they're going to kill themselves. And what, this about the hype is also something that is unpredictable. Or uh, have you seen any things that you can pinpoint, like, ah, I can predict, like, this is going to be hyped in, before it happens? So I cannot predict the level of hype. I can only, I can only uh, guess based on experience. Um, the last 20 years, I wish I had listened to myself when I used to say top 10 brand, sports model, stainless steel, uh, 20 to 40 years in production, nonstop production. So if you take all these, all these models, let's say it's if overproduced and doesn't really count, but if it's produced in limited quantities or quantities less than what people want, You cannot go wrong. So any stainless steel Patek Philippe, uh, Vacheron, unfortunately, they they went back and forth uh, from the 222 to the overseas to modification, uh, first series, second series. So they it changed a bit too much. Today is the, the, the 40 years back or 20 years back and it's no longer uh, valid. It's just stainless steel, top 10 brand, sports model. You know you have a, you have a hit. Uh, when you see s smaller brands that are reaping all the, the benefits when, uh, you know, I'm not sure if it's true or not, when you hear about Zenith that it's selling out their El Primero because it's like, it looks like the Daytona, but it's not. And it's its cheaper price point. Um, it's, it could be regarded as a better movement because of the higher frequency in the date. Okay, fine. But the fact remains that people want the status symbol. They don't care that it's uh, that it could be better. They want the Rolex. They want the Daytona. They don't want a substitute. Um, the only brand sister of uh, of Rolex that did uh, that did well is Tudor, where they're able to break the codes and to do little watches uh, for uh, two, three, four, five, six thousand francs that are also selling out because uh, they have that vintage feel, but with a modern durability. And uh, I think I heard in one of your previous interviews that you collect, you wear only modern watches. So I wear only modern watches just so that people, if they're like, oh, but, uh, you know, like if I see something on my wrist, they, they can actually literally go and buy it. It's not a vintage watch that's not for sale. So all the vintage watches that we have, um, I wear Because them. that's for the business. That's for the business. It's like, we it's don't like, like drug dealers. <laughs> they don't consume their own drugs. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You don't get high on your own, on your own stash, exactly. <laughs> on your own supply, you don't get high on your own supply. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a bit like that, like it's because you, like when you see a vintage watch, you see it as part of a business. Yes. Like, not, not for wearing. Exactly, so it's, it's, it's a bit difficult, but we do, we really do our best. Um, I also had uh, some questions about like modern brands, and sorry to come back again to the moon swatch, but what is your perception of what the moon swatch did to Omega? Like, did it, in, did it help? Did it harm? So, having the moon swatch display in the Omega boutique, <laughs> boutiques, uh, 
Omega salespeople probably wish they had a thousand Moonswatch each to sell them to the thousands of people who asked them for one. Um, but I know for a fact that it drove a lot of people to the Omega boutiques because when the early days when some watches were selling for like 2,000, 2,500, 3,000 francs online, people were like, shit, for double the money, I can get an actual moon watch in stainless steel. And now I know for a fact also that they're selling out the regular Speedmasters in the, in the Omega boutiques. And also it has driven a lot more traffic to these watch stores. So it's a win-win. Only the people who aren't able to get one, like me, for example, I'm, I'm waiting to get uh, the light blue and I want to get the, the, the safari color one. I can't get them because every time I go, they're either sold out or I come the wrong time or whatever. But I'm quite happy. I already have a few of them, which I wear very enjoyably and everybody uh, oohs and ahs. <laughs> but, uh, you know, for a 250 franc watch, I get the same uh, reaction as if I was wearing a Paul Newman Daytona. Maybe more people will notice it even. <laughs> no, but it's funny. Also, I feel safer. You know, when yeah. I go to certain places, I wear my Moon's watch. Uh, no one's going to bother me. You know? uh, this is also another question. Thank you for bringing it up. Um, now you hear a lot of stories. I don't know if it's more because I'm paying attention or there's always been the case, but it seems that there's a bit more risk uh, in some so cities. The value of the watches have increased so much. When a watch was worth 4,000, nobody would try to steal it from you. Now when it, went, when it goes to 40 and then it goes to 140 or goes to 400 or a million, People are like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll risk going to jail or whatever to steal uh, these watches. So the, the value of the pieces has increased so much that people are more willing to take risks to take it off of unsuspecting victims. Um, but this is only for specific pieces. Well, they, they recognize. But let's say if you look a certain way and you wear a certain watch and they recognize that it could be like a Journe dial, they recognize that it could be like a Richard Mille or they recognize it's a Nautilus or a Daytona, there's a high risk that someone's going to mess with you. Uh, you see uh, horrible viral videos of people getting beat up or women getting beat up or people like putting their hand, like tricks, people like knock your mirror while you're driving and then you open the, the window to adjust the mirror and somebody, somebody else comes and grabs your wrist and takes your watch off your wrist. So all these things you have to know, but at the same time, just just be aware of your surroundings. Uh, even in the summer, whenever I wear a nice watch, I wear a long wrist, a long sleeve shirt over my wrist. Uh, whenever I have to bring a watch to a client or something, it's in my pocket. Uh, I walk around with uh, more discreet pieces. Um, unless, although, although Geneva is quite no, Geneva safe, but let's say if I have to go, I go from here to my house. I don't care. No, nothing's gonna happen. Um, but let's say if, if, um, if I go to a certain area that is known for as a tourist trap, then uh, I avoid. Uh, you know, it's a, just I know the tricks and uh, just try to be careful. But this is uh, like when you travel, let's say you go to Milan or you go to, the, to Paris or to London. You can do whatever you want, but as long as you remember that people are watching you. And that the item on your wrist is no longer worth a couple thousand bucks. It could be worth a couple hundred thousand bucks. So that's what... Uh, that's what makes uh, the difference. And um, I wanted to hear your thoughts on the balance of power in the watch brands. Has pretty much remained stable for a couple of years. I mean, it's Rolex and then some of the others. But that has changed throughout the years. Do you see that there changing? Are, there are fluctuations in the balance of power. Uh, Richard Mille has come, come up. Yeah. Omar Piguet has come up more. Um, 
it's it's uh, Patek is still uh, doing okay. strong. Cartier is stronger. It was always strong, but now it's stronger. Rolex is also stronger because they're they're just they're just kicking ass. Um, Omega also is also doing very well compared to the other brands and the. the but there was group. a period, for example, that Omega was considered more entry level. Well, that was like recently, but uh, many years ago, it was even like more valuable than a Rolex at one point. That was in the 1940s, where the people spoke about the most known watch brands, and Omega was one of them. Um, every family that I, a lot of families that I know, all have an Omega. The lady who came Because, in uh, a little bit ago, she has an Omega. My grandfather bought an Omega. My father had an Omega. Omega was really the brand that everybody had. Then you see some people have Vacheron, some people had Breguet, some people had Patek, more people had Rolex, but the most, in my experience, had um, Omegas, because Omega was a much bigger, much more important uh, brand than Rolex was. But in the 50s, if I'm not mistaken, the direction, the, the, the governing direction of uh, Rolex, commercial directors and all things, took a very aggressive stance and took away market shares from everybody else. They, they, they really did a great job and they kept on to that power 70 years later, which so is crazy. This is, this is what I was wondering. Do you see another shift like this? No. No, 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 no. there's nobody else. Nobody's going to dethrone Rolex. Rolex is, um, today it's, it's a... If people tell me like, oh yeah, I wish one day to find Daytona's half off. And I'm like, yeah, that day we can all kiss our asses goodbye <laughs> because the uh, luxury market is dead and uh, we can, we're going to be trading uh, solid gold uh, to buy bread. You know, this is what's going to happen. So I hope that the Daytona particular market stays strong and uh, we'll see the rest. Everybody else will follow one way or the other. Whether it stabilizes and corrects itself, that will be happier about. Um, So I wish vintage to continue going the way it is and to modern to cool off a little bit. But, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. And the last thing, um, I know that you have a, a popular Instagram account. So you are you're embracing social media and that's a way that you also maybe do some marketing and get to know people get to know you. That's how I came to know you. But I guess that a lot of your clients are uh, through word of mouth, like someone ref refers you to To someone, so have, how does it work? So it depends. Uh, my brother manages the Davidoff Brothers account uh, quite well. We have uh, we have a certain we have we have hired a photographer to take certain types of pictures. We do certain drops at certain times. Um, you know, a little bit of studies. There are people that did it before us, and we're just trying to follow the trend somewhere. Um, we modify certain things, where people started copying us as well, which is kind of nice. Uh, so it's it's very important. People find us. Um, through, as you say, word of mouth, through interviews, uh, through the websites, people walk by the shop and then uh, take the information down and later on send us a message because we're by appointment only, we don't accept walk-ins. Through the websites, through uh, organic uh, SEO, which is also a nice thing, you know, in certain rare references, you type in the reference and our shop comes up first. Uh, so all these things are quite, um, they're, 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 the, the web 2.0 and the web 3.0 has helped us a lot. Roy, it has been a pleasure talking to you. And thank you for mine. sharing your, your knowledge. You're welcome. The industry. Thank you. Welcome. This was the Rodolfo Rivas Project. I hope you loved it. Can you...